0: I thought I can outsmart all the hedge funds and all the, the smartest investor by shorting NVIDIA before the first quarter results. So I can tell you, it has been a very painful experience.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I am here with featured guests, Laurent Locu. Laurent, are you ready to join the mission?
0: I will enjoy it for sure, Andrew.
1: (laughs) I'm excited to have you on. And, you know, I, uh, I originally saw you on Twitter and followed, you know, what you're posting and things that you're talking about. And that's why I reached out to get you on the show. And so I really appreciate you joining. And I want to introduce you to the audience. So Lauren is a multi-asset investor dedicated to assisting high net worth individuals and retail investors in achieving financial success through actionable investment insights derived from comprehensive global macro trends and meticulous bottom-up analysis. Lauren is a global citizen with a mission to enhance financial literacy and empower individuals worldwide through education. And I can say your, your analysis is great. And I like you do go into detail, and your charts and graphs are awesome. So, Lauren, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world.
0: Well, I try to, to bring education to everyone. I think that everyone in this world deserves a financial education. So, what I've trying to do is to share the knowledge that I have accumulated over the past 25 years that I've been in this business and share it with everyone. So as high net worth individual, as well as retail investors.
1: Mm. And what is, you know, when you think about your style, you mentioned about the macro and the bottom up, maybe you can tell us a little bit about if somebody was to follow you, to follow you on Twitter, to subscribe to your newsletter or something like that, What should they expect to get from you?
0: Well, uh, I look at charts because I think that a good chart tells more than a lot of words. I look at the past because I believe in cycles. So I think that things repeat with cycles. Mm. And also I look at correlation because with something that happened in Brazil will have an impact in the north of Thailand at some point in time. Mm. Oh, so this is the way that I work. I I mean, I usually start with a chart. And from there, I try to, I would say, take out a recommendation. And also, I have to say that I'm, I'm a contrarian investor. I like to go against the tight. So it's difficult sometimes.
1: Yeah, contrarian has to have a lot of guts, and you've got to stick it out during the time that it's not working, you know, and it can be painful sometimes, but.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, from my background as a buy-side analyst, I believe in fundamentals. So I'm still looking at valuation. I know that these days, people will tell you that valuation doesn't matter, but I think that back to the fundamentals is always the way that you generate a good performance. Mm -hmm. And can you give us like a
1: taste of the way you see the world right now? from your, let's say, macro and bottom-up analysis, like what's one or two things that you've been seeing that you could share with us?
0: Well, uh, the two things that I'm kind of against the consensus, I think that the inflation issue is not over. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago about the return of the inflation boomerang. Yep. So this is clearly something that we continue to drive the financial markets in the next few months and even years. I think that this is a structural change in terms of inflation picture. And also I think that in fact everyone thinks that the US government bond or US Treasury yield is, is the safe haven. And there also I think there's a big change because of what's happening in the US, where the government will continue to stimulate the economy push on the accelerator, while at the, at the same time, the Fed push on the brake. So you have an economy that is going up and down. I call this the trampoline landing. means that you will have some data showing good growth, other data showing potential recession. But this is only because you have the two major policy: the fiscal policy and the monetary policy going into opposite direction. And how does that how does
1: that end up working out in your opinion? You know, on the one hand, the Fed can say, you know, quantitative tightening and you know, we're going to continue on, but if the government is just you know, spending like crazy as I think that they continue to do, you know, you have a very different force and I'm just curious a lot of people are talking about, oh, it's a soft landing, everything's going to be okay and there's other people that would say, no, within, I don't know, three, six, 12 months, we're going to have a massive reversal back to QE, interest rates back down to zero because we're going to face another crisis and the only tool they have is to lower rates and and do QE and pump in money. Where do you stand on that?
0: Well, I think we have a lot to learn from emerging markets. And I mean, I look at Argentina, because this is a country where investors and people have lost confidence in the government, in the public institution. And at the end of the day, when you have a government stimulating and uh, central banks being hawkish, I mean, investors and uh, citizens don't really know what's going on in terms of public institution, right? So I guess that developed markets are heading into this kind of situation. But this is more a long-term end game. Before that, I think that the Fed, like the BOJ, will implement such a kind of e-curve control. I mean, they like the the fancy acronym, so won't BYCC. They will find another another fancy name. But once we cross five or five fifty on the ten-year yield, I guess that the Fed will have to do something one way or the others. But I mean, the end game is we end in an inflationary environment. means that the government and the Fed inflate the way out. And so in this environment, in fact, if you look at what happened in Argentina to come back on this or Mm. in Turkey, I mean, people are better off to buy the stock market, are better off to buy the blue chips that are able to generate free cash flow and earnings that are outperforming inflation than having a government bonds. So that I think that's the end game. I think it will take maybe five years to get there. So it's going to be a bumpy road before we reach that level. But I would say on a risk-adjusted return, I think that, in fact, government bonds are not attractive at the long end of the curve.
1: Mm, because the inflation is going to be higher than what people are expecting or factoring into the yields right now.
0: Yes, I guess I mean, of course, the the Biden administration doesn't want to tell anyone that the inflation is here to stay, right? Because next year we have an election, and we all know that the election will be on the gasoline price, will be on the inflation, will be mm. on the. On the bill that everyone pays at the, at Walmart, that's, that's what matters for Americans. I mean, the other things doesn't really matter for Americans. So I think that they will do everything to kick the can. The first way to kick the can is reshoring, inflation reduction act. So you put all the shovels in the streets. you improve infrastructure. This gives also the impression that the government is doing something. And this is positive for the economy, right? So, in mm. terms of sectors, clearly, in fact, the unlawed cyclicals and industrials should be the way the place where investors are and not necessarily the the tech which are highly valued
1: and just to wrap this up, my next question related to this is, let's take the average investor from Asia. Let's not think about maybe Singapore or Taiwan or Hong Kong, where the currencies are tied to the dollar to some extent. Let's think about an investor, a high net worth investor in Thailand as an example, or Indonesia or wherever, where there are somewhat floating currencies. And let's say they don't have any US exposure right now, and they they have cash to allocate. Do you think that they should be allocating that money to the US now? Or do you think that they should leave it in their home market? Or how would you see global asset allocation?
0: Well, it depends on the time horizon. I would think that in the first phase, all this is very bullish for the US dollar. So we will still see US dollar strengthening. The strengthening will be mostly against DM currency, so mostly against euro, against Japanese yen, against the pound. Mm. Against emerging market, I think it's kind of a bit of a different situation. I would say that emerging market currencies in the next three, five years most likely range bound against the us dollar mm. but after that you will have a massive appreciation of emerging market currency because once the i would say institutional investors realize that the way out of the us is inflationary i mean they've have, they've have only emerging market as the other place to invest and that's why i mean these investors should start looking at local currency bonds Which I think are undervalued, give a good yield pickup and where you have a a strong potential of currency appreciation over the long term. I was, I have highlighted what I call the BIMI. These are the four big emerging markets outside China. China is a bit difficult to invest for non Chinese investor. Mm. Brazil, India, Mexico, Indonesia. These are very big domestic consumption markets in emerging markets. These are countries where the central banks, in fact, were proactive in fighting inflation, where the central banks have, I mean, are already cutting rates. The, the Brazilian central banks have pivoted two weeks ago, way before the Fed. Mm-hmm. And where I think there's good value and where everyone is under-invested because it's not on the radar screen of the big, institutional investor because everyone look at nvidia apple because it's i mean it's the safe it's the safe trade right no yep. if you are managing pension money in singapore buying the brazilian stock market is not really the safe trade if you want to keep your job so but i feel that's where the alpha in the future will come from
1: so let me just summarize it by saying first is you're thinking dollar strength initially, and it's going to strengthen against the developed market currencies mainly, and emerging currencies will be in kind of a holding pattern. And then eventually, there'll be a massive depreciation of dollar and appreciation of emerging market currencies. And you've mentioned Brazil, India, Mexico, and Indonesia, all relatively strong domestic economies large enough and emerging to the extent that they may be long-term beneficiaries of what eventually will start to be the negative impact on the US dollar in the US, these would be longer-term places that would benefit. Is that that summarized? Anything else you would add? That's right.
0: That's right. I I think other ASEAN countries will benefit as well, but there are two small to be on the radar screen of the big institutional investors. So, I mean, indirectly, once all these BIMI are doing well, Thailand and the neighboring countries will do well. But I would say that these are kind of too small markets to fall under the radar screen. So if investors want to keep it simple in emerging market, and because... I mean, I think it's difficult to invest in China as a non-Chinese investor. Mm. These BIMI are the place to be, I mean, for the next 10 to 15 years.
1: I just noticed, I mean, you, you don't have much discussion about Europe. I'm just curious, what is just, you know, given your where you originally come from, what's your perspective on Europe these days?
0: Well, if I have, I can be honest, it's a dead zone. I think that the energy crisis will get worse. Germany, which was the engine of Europe, its business model is broken. The business model was based on cheap energy coming from Russia. This is a broken business model. The demography uh, situation in Europe is, is negative. It's like Japan. So you don't invest in markets where you have negative long-term demographic trends. So that's why I think Europe, in fact, outside a few stocks which will benefit from the rise of this BIMI, and we all know them, these are in the luxury sector, Mm -hmm. some specific industrial companies that are able to to sell overseas and have a, a diversified source of manufacturing. Outside this, I don't see any reason to to focus on Europe. In fact, I think that Europe is where you will see the first credit crisis before the US. And that's why I think that you will see flows from the Eurozone into the US dollar zone because typically a European investor will will find a, a safe haven in the US dollar. And is that because,
1: I mean, if I look at the US banks, they're actually in pretty good shape. If I look at them compared to, let's say, 2008. So the banks have some weaknesses in regional banks and commercial lending for uh, commercial real estate. But if I look at European banks and having been through a period of negative interest rates and all that, are you thinking that the bank sector is more weak in Europe or where is your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think that the banking sector is weaker in Europe than in the U.S. First, also the issue of Europe is not one country. There's no one yeah. regulator. There's no. I mean, the ECB is there as the central bank, but there are 27 different fiscal regimes in Europe. There are 27 different yeah. governments in the eurozone. So, I don't think that European banks will have to deal with domestic problems. And, and as I said. Because of Germany and the fact that its business model is completely broken, I mean, Germany was the driver of the European growth, right? So all other countries like Netherlands, Belgium, and Sweden, and all these surrounding countries, I mean, are set to follow Germany in that descending trend Mm -hmm. for the next few years.
1: So for the listeners out there, I'm going to have links in the show notes to your Substack called Trillion Next. So I assume that's the best place for people to go that want to hear more of what you have to share.
0: Yes, I write a free weekly newsletter. I also have a few portfolios for subscribers. I mean, different types of portfolios. Some are more active. I'm, Mm. I'm managing a long short. So for those who are interested for very trading opportunities, that's the very actionable opportunities. Mm. I have a, what I call a strategic portfolio. It's basically 20 ETF reflecting my pro view and my long-term views.
1: Fantastic. Well, we'll have links to all that in the show notes. So for the listeners out there, the viewers who want to learn more, make sure to go there and also follow you on Twitter. I know... Uh, I've enjoyed your post, so I appreciate that. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it, and then tell us your story.
0: Well, my my worst investment ever, in fact, occurred not long ago. It was just a few months ago. I thought I could outsmart all the hedge funds and all the, the smartest investors by shorting NVIDIA before the first quarter results. I can tell you it has been a very painful experience in terms of worst investment ever.
1: What was your thesis originally? Was it that it was already priced in or that it wasn't going to be as good as what people thought? Or
0: Well, my thesis was it was more than priced in. It was extended. It was an overcrowded trade. So it has everything to be a sell on the news kind of event. Mm -hmm. And it seems that, no, I still have some more people able to chase (laughs) the unchaseable.
1: (laughs) And what, how did you handle the positioning once it started going against you?
0: Well, I, I had to cut, right? Because I had to, I mean, I think that what is very important is risk management. So I had to, I took the loss, Mm. And I mean, uh, I think that what I learned is that every trade, win or lose, huh, you need to be humble in this business. Mm. So, I mean, you just take the hit and then you restart, right? Because it's your business. It's what you, it's what for you are waking up in the morning, right? Is to look at the screen and find the next good long or the next good short opportunity.
1: Yeah, I guess my lesson I take from it is that you have to accept that you're going to be wrong. And when you get it wrong, you've got to be able to exit, particularly in a short position, because, you know, it can turn real bad real fast. So there's also the issue of position sizing, particularly with, you know, with a short position that it can get, you know, really out of control. So I think it's a good lesson. And here's an expert who's made a a bet on a particular thesis, and it didn't work the way you thought, exit. And that's my biggest takeaway from that.
0: Yeah, that's right. Sizing is very important. I mean, uh, I think that every trade that you go in, they cannot kill you. They can just eat you, but they cannot kill you because you need to stay in the game, right? And so sizing is the most important. And also, as I said, risk management, You have to. you have to admit that you were wrong, and then the market is always right at the end.
1: Mm. Yes, if you don't admit you're wrong, the market will admit it for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true. That's right, that's right. Too. You need to be very humble. And the issue that I I have since I've joined this industry is that I find that it's not really an industry where people is humble. Is a lot of people are are very kind, are very part of what they do. They never tell you about their worst investment ever.
1: And that's what we're all about. More than 700 interviews of people talking about their worst investment ever to help. And that brings me to the next question, which is based upon what you've learned from the story that you've told and all the stuff that you've learned over the years. What would be, you know, let's imagine a young person who is thinking they're going to go short on a particular stock. What's one action you'd recommend that our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Well, as I said, I think sizing is very important. Before you enter the trades, you need to know how much you can lose, how much you are able to lose. It's more important than how much you can win, in fact, <laughs> over the long term. If you know for every day, every trade, how much you can lose, I think that you will be a very successful investor. Mm. And as I say, I admit that you are wrong. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong to be wrong. This is an industry where you have to be right more often than wrong, but you have to, you will be wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you've set a great example of somebody that, you know, is super experienced and yet, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And so that was a great example. What's a resource of yours or any others that you'd recommend for our listeners?
0: Well, I think that everyone should continue to to learn. and. I encourage everyone to be a continuous learner. We can learn from everyone something every day in our life. And in finance, is very important because, I mean, this is an industry that is evolving quite fast. So learning and being humble, and as I said, even after 25 years in this business, I still make mistakes and I still learn new things every day. Mm. So I think that focusing on personal learning and personal development in terms of financial literacy is very important.
1: Great, I love continually learning, and that's a lifetime thing. And that's what makes finance so challenging: is you really do need to keep learning. All right, last question: but What
0: I think you- if I say I think that the issue is also that the educational system is not really helping Joe and Jane to learn about how to manage his or own uh, portfolio so i think this is something that is kind of a, a miss coming from the government mission to to help people to grow
1: it's funny how much people hate government but yet they rely on government so much it's a contradiction all right last question what is your number one goal for the next 12 months
0: well, as I said, on a professional level, is to be fully dedicated to my new my new company, which is part to improve financial literacy for everyone, and also this is part of my mission. I would say to democratize and demystify uh, macro investing. I think there's no need to be fearful about macro investing. Mm. At the end of the day, all these concepts of investment can be explained quite easily. And that's what I try to do also on Twitter. I guess a good chart usually helps a lot of people to, to memorize what's happening in the market.
1: Well, that's, that's exciting. And I know, as I said, I've been enjoying your Twitter feed. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And we just got a good story to help us with that. As we conclude, Laurent, I wanna thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: That's the best award I ever received, Andrew. (laughs) My my last word would be that Unlock your individual financial success and learn to be financially independent.
1: Great, great advice. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.